The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false and do not swear deceitfully. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. Such is the company of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Hans Joachim Krauss in his commentary on this passage says, Look once more for the Sitzimleben, the setting in life. Remember that synagogues came along relatively late in Israelite history. The synagogues are more a, a beginning point around the life of Jesus. When that second temple was destroyed and people no longer had a temple on the top of Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, the two hills gradually were, were blended together. Uh, there was no temple. And so then synagogues began in the various cities. But for a long time, there was only one temple. The average Israelite got to go to the temple three times a year if he was fortunate, and it mostly was an activity of the men, uh, three times a year. Now, those who lived in Jerusalem, of course, could go daily or weekly, but most people went three times a year. So this psalm, a great hymn of the Israelite people, would have probably fit into one of those settings. It doesn't look like Passover, particularly. It doesn't look like the Feast of Weeks, particularly. It looks more like that fall festival we've talked about before. When pagans all around the Jews uh, came to their harvest, ate more than they ought, drank more than they ought, had sex with whomever, and then brought their drunken king in and announced, Behold our king, he is our God. The Jews instead went into a period of introspection, of questioning, what might I have done better this year than I did? Now, what good did I fail to do that I might have done? What wrong did I do that I don't want to do, ought not to do in the new year? Finally culminating in the high priest going into the Holy of Holies and begging God to move from the seat of judgment to the seat of mercy at which time the beautiful box containing the tablets of the Ten Commandments was brought in. And rather than behold our King, He is our God, behold our God, He is our King. Dr. Otter Weiser is convinced as well, Dr. Sigmund Mowinkel convinced as well, that this psalm was written for that kind of celebration, culminating after ten days of introspection and confession, entering into a new year, with the I am who I am, our King and our God. Let's look at this. Number one, it begins, The earth is the Lord's, and all that live in it, for he has established it upon the seas and the rivers. You have to understand that the Jews were not basically a seagoing people. 
They were a land-based people, and the sea was something they feared. In fact, this word that has to do with waters, many, many waters, also has to do with chaos. And what is envisioned here is that first there was darkness and chaos, and only God spoke to bring order and light. Remember that every writer of the Bible believed the earth was flat? Not only did every writer believe the earth was flat, he believed that the earth was somehow surrounded by water. If you went far enough in any direction, you came to water. If you dug down far enough, you could come to water. And water leaked through the heavens onto your head from time to time. They envisioned the world as something like Venice, Italy. A city built on stilts in the muck and water. They talk about the pillars of the earth down into this murky water When Noah built the boat, not only did water come from the heavens, but water also came from underneath. Chaos reasserted itself. And to look at this psalm is to understand that though God has been victorious over chaos, he also created humans to be free to make decisions and humans bring chaos back from time to time. I've told you that in the spring of the year, when the Jewish community sets aside that special time to remember Holocaust, they don't prefer to call it Holocaust. Holocaust means the burning, and that's what occurred, of course. People were gassed and burned, millions of them. But the Jewish people prefer the words Yom HaShoah, the chaos. The chaos came back. Because vile people brought it back. Alan Jacobs has a new book out called Original Sin. Every so many years, somebody rediscovers sin. Remember when old Dr. Menninger from the Menninger Clinic up in Topeka, Kansas, wrote a book years ago, Whatever Happened to Sin? Here was a psychiatrist who had spent his life treating people with all kinds of emotional disorders, saying, it's not enough to say this child was not loved enough by its mother, hugged enough by its father. This child is a sinner. All people are sinners. In Alan Jacobs' new book, he mentions how people down through history, even if they didn't ascribe what they were saying to religious categories, it did in fact fit well into this religious category of sin. G.K. Chesterton said, of all the beliefs of the religious community, the one that ought to be accepted by everybody is original sin. Just look around you. Or to go back to St. Augustine in the 4th century who said, original sin? Absolutely Look at the angry cry of a baby when he or she is not the absolute center of its world. All the way to this sinner, he said, who is tempted every day not to spend the amount of time he ought in communion with God. Sigmund Freud talked about those dark forces that come from the subconscious. Those dark, dark forces from the subconscious. Or, 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote about life in the gulags of the old Soviet Union, how horrible it was to be confined to one of those prisons. But he wrote, the sharpest line was not between guards and prisoners, but the line in every man's soul to do the good and to do what was evil. Both guards and prisoners, stepping on one side of the line or the other, to do the good or to do what is evil. And Alan Jacobs concludes, And so humankind lurches on from catastrophe to catastrophe because we are determined to make self the center of the universe. Number two, as these pilgrims ascend the hill, Dr. Otter Weiser says, do you understand what's happening here? These people dare to believe they can stand in the presence of the owner of the world. They dare to believe they can stand in the presence of the owner of the world. What is their requirement that they be pure in heart? Pure in heart. Three weeks ago, Dr. Tankersley went on vacation. We're not ever letting Bill take a vacation again. Every time he leaves town, people start dying. Uh, he went on spring break with his family a couple of years ago. Here it was, Holy Week. We had Palm Sunday, we had Monday, Thursday, we had Good Friday. It was time to write the best Easter sermon I was capable of writing. And eight people died the week he was gone. Three weeks ago, Monday morning, the phone started ringing. And by Friday afternoon, we had had seven deaths. We were running like crazy trying to see all of these families and help them in this very difficult time they were going through. That week... The Pew Forum on Religious Studies decided to release their latest big survey. Thousands of people interviewed, and it attracted enough attention that with my trying to run from one family to the other who just had a death, I got a call from the Tulsa world and a call from one of our television stations within an hour of each other. And one of my professors said, if you don't talk to the media, somebody else will. You talk to the media. So I talked to both of them. They wanted to know what I thought about this study from the Pew Forum. Basically, what they were concerned about was the great number of people who believe their religion is not the only religion. Does that bother you, they asked, that people think their religion is not the only religion? Uh, first of all, you need to take a good look at the questionnaire. It says, do you think your religion is the only one that will help people come into the presence of God after death. Now, you see, that could have been a Baptist who's being asked in his or her home, do you think Lutherans are going to get there? you think Methodists are going to get there? Episcopalians, Roman Catholics? Or they could have been thinking about Jews, Muslims, perhaps even Hindus and Buddhists. What amazed the writer from Tulsa World and the reporter from one of the television stations was, uh, why do people not think their religion 
is the only one. What interested me even more in the study was their discovery that the new seeker-friendly churches that are out there in America, you may have seen them at the malls. Uh, They sometimes appear in the mall on Saturdays, and they're there with a questionnaire. What would you like to happen at church? You want coffee? We've got coffee. You want to drink coffee in the sanctuary? You can drink coffee in the sanctuary. You don't want to wear a coat and tie? You don't have to wear a coat and tie. Yeah, you want to come in gear? You can go onto the beach or the lake afterwards. It's okay with us. Just come along. We don't care. Just come. Bring your latte right on into the sanctuary. But what they discovered was that though these seeker-friendly churches seem to be doing a good job of making folks happy, not many of them seem to know very much about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I would feel good about that if I didn't know that it's also true of most Boston Avenues. I've tried really hard a long time, 28 years, in this place to preach and with others teach God's whole story. To sing God's whole story. When we get down to asking people questions, I don't have very many answers. You see, the intent is that we spend significant time with God until we know as much as we can about the mind and heart of God, as much as we can about the mind and heart of God, so that we have some genuine sense of what God wants to happen in God's world. It's all about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God may come on earth as it is in heaven. Pure heart. Hearts that want only the will of God. To know and then to do the will of God. Number three, what is required of people who ascend this hill? Not only that they have pure hearts, but that they have clean hands. Every scholar I read this week said, oh, clean hands. That has to do, could have something to do with cultural uh, ceremonies of purity. Uh, We know that in the Islamic faith, you're not supposed to go into a holy place without washing your hands and your feet. The Jews also had lots of rituals about hand washing and foot washing, which Jesus talked about. But most of the scholars believe that's not what this poet has in mind. This poet really has in mind, what have your hands been up to? Meaning, what have you done? What have you done? What? Marks are on your hands. Blood on your hands? Uh, Misdeeds on your hands? What have you done? What have you done to make life better? At our general conference in Fort Worth a couple of months ago, one of the big presentations we saw one afternoon was the celebration of the advance, it's called. The celebration of the many years now of the, the advance Our General Board of Global Ministries publishes a catalog. It's a good half-inch thick, I think. Uh, A catalog every year of how you and I can be more involved in the world through some United Methodist agency. For example, you don't have to take a, a phone number off television and send money to somebody you have no idea 
uh, whether the money's ever accounted for or not, uh, some, some celebrity, some Hollywood star, somebody you've seen on television asks you to do this. The Methodist Church has a catalog of ways you can be involved. You want to be involved? You want to help somebody? You can buy three hens and a rooster. We will deliver it for you to a place where they need three hens and a rooster. You want to buy a heifer that can become a mother cow someday? You can buy a heifer for somebody. In certain countries of the world, you can buy pigs. You can buy seeds that people can plant. You can help buy fertilizer. There are all kinds of things in this advanced catalog. You want to spend $20? You want to give 500 You want to give a half million? We have things to which you can give. Well, one of the things that was being celebrated was a center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This center is specifically dedicated to helping people who have been tortured in the many different countries of the world where political factions, tribal groups capture each other and horribly torture each other. And one of the stories that was written was a story about a young man named Omar. They didn't want to identify him too closely because he still has relatives in one of these Middle Eastern countries. But when Omar was 20 years old, a group of thugs came into his home, his parents' home, and swept him away, his parents unable to do anything to prevent this, and for the next 18 months beat him, whipped him, had him chained, believing he was a part of the opposition to what they were trying to accomplish. His mother and father, not people of great wealth by any means, were trying everything they could do to get his release. Uh, they borrowed, uh, they worked as hard as they could, and finally had enough money to bribe one of the ones who had control over him, got him released in time, helped him be smuggled to a different country where life could start again, and eventually could get him all the way to the United States of America. But he brought with him 18 months of horrible torture. He trusted no one. No one. And he became a street person here in the United States, sleeping under a bridge, sleeping in a cardboard box, afraid to look people in the eye, afraid to trust anyone. And we United Methodists found him invited him to come into this center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Within a year, they had taught him that there are people you can trust. They decided this young man had a good heart, and they put him to work on an ice cream vending truck, where the little truck went up and down the streets of the neighborhoods of Minneapolis, with children running out to the sound of the tinkling bell to buy ice cream, to buy ice cream. He saw children, excited, joyful children. He saw people getting along with each other. He saw streets and neighborhoods where there was no violence, no torture. Within a year, he had enough money that he could become a taxi driver. Within two years, he owned his own cab. Within five years, he owned a service station as well. Within seven years, he owned a fleet of taxis. He has 40 people working for him. And he says, and they all have benefits.
He's gone from a person tortured, humiliated, beaten, told that he was of no worth whatsoever to a person with clean hands, clean hands, who is helping to make the world a better place and who understands that it means providing opportunities for others and benefits for others so that all who work with him and for him can see tomorrow as better than today and the next day better than that. What are we doing to make the world? Are we doing risk-taking mission? We'll talk about that again September the 7th. Number four. Finally, this psalm is about the king of glory, right? This author leaves no doubt about that. In the last two verses, five times he uses the expression, the king of glory, the king of glory, the king of glory, the king of glory, the king of glory. It's all about the king of glory. And who is the king of glory, he asks? The Lord. Remember, that translates the name given to Moses at the burning bush. The king of glory is the I am who I am. The one who sent Moses back to Egypt, who visited plagues upon the Pharaoh till he let God's people go free. The one who parted the waters to help them escape. The one who led them again to Sinai and gave them ten commandments for structuring their community. He is the king of glory. Dr. James May says we Christians use this in a different context. We use it at Advent. Those four weeks when we anticipate again the coming of Mary's child, our Lord Jesus. We dare to believe that the King of glory who created the heavens and the earth was genuinely present in Jesus of Nazareth. That what you see in him, you can know to be true about Almighty God. Dr. Otter Weiser says, Christians can also use Psalm 24 for Ascension Day, when we've been through weeks of the Pentecostal season, and then celebrate Christ's final ascendancy to be at the very right hand of God, that once again the King of Glory, has been revealed to us in Jesus of Nazareth, who has triumphed over both sin and death. But this one taught us, he who would save his life will lose it. And he or she who's willing to lose his or her life for my sake shall surely find it. What does it profit a man, the old King James Version said, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? A couple of weeks ago, Gail and I went to see Phantom of the Opera. It's one of her favorite shows. She's seen the movie several times. She said she was going to sing along. I was glad she didn't. Uh, I was afraid they would usher us out before the first act was over. But she knew every song. Uh, I don't know them that well, so I was paying really close attention to what Andrew Lloyd Webber had written. You remember it's a story about the Paris Opera House. It begins with an auction taking place and then immediately falls back 30 years before and brings you sort of up to date. 
the Paris Opera House was changing hands because it's gone, gotten into great difficulty. There's a man who lives there. They call the Phantom. Strange and horrible things happen to those who do not carry out his every wish. He demands a certain box at every performance. He falls for a young woman who's about to be in the next big production. He teaches her how to sing. He claims to be her muse. He wants also to be her lover. He's a man terribly disfigured. He wears a mask over one half of his face. There's an attempt to explain that one time he had come to Paris as a freak in a carnival show, that he escaped, and no one knew exactly where he had gone. He's ended up in the storm sewers underneath the city of Paris. And when he occasionally surfaces or you see some deed or misdeed of his, it occurs in the opera house. He wants Christine to be his. She's taken in by him at first, but then discovers that she really loves a young man who also loves her, and she wants to spend her life with him forever. There's a song she sings. I don't think Andrew Lloyd Webber was thinking in religious terms at this point. She's been asked to lure this phantom out so that he can be finally captured and brought to justice. I mean, you have falling chandeliers and a man who's hanged and all kind of things that have happened, bad things because of this phantom of the opera, and she's supposed to lure him out. She sings, Must I risk my life in order that I may truly live? And the song and the scene are called The Point of no return.